Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is September the 25th. A couple of weeks ago, we had Tom Burgess, the author of Kleptopia, on the show. Uh, How Dirty Money is Conquering the World. I was particularly intrigued with his thesis and troubled and indeed chilled by, by what Tom was revealing about the way in which Uh, The world was increasingly ruled by dirty money. And I said to Tom after the show, how do I follow up on your book? How do we drill down? And one of his suggestions was to talk to his friend, I think an ex-colleague or current colleague at the Financial Times, Catherine Belton. She's the author of Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West. It's uh, one of the most acclaimed books of the summer, a long, profound, troubling book. Uh, Catherine, to begin, you suggest that there's a new kind of capitalism uh, based perhaps in Russia, but uh, infiltrating the rest of the world. You call it KGB capitalism. What does that mean? Yeah, it's essentially how kind of, well, Putin and his regime have their roots, the way that they operate uh, stems back to their experiences uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, Putin in particular was based in Dresden in East Germany, uh, where he was sort of central to various kind of uh, smuggling activities, including the transfer of uh, illicit uh, kind of uh, Western technology from the West into the the Soviet Union. It was one of the main hubs for that. They used a variety of front companies to do so. But it was also at a time when uh, the foreign intelligence arm of the KGB in particular had realized that the writing was really on the wall for communism in the Eastern Bloc and in the Soviet Union itself. And they were making preparations to survive a transition to the market economy. And so what they were doing was that they were using front companies and other loyal allies uh, to do kind of fake deals through which they they could siphon cash and sort of create uh, wealth and preserve networks so that they could continue to survive under a market economy. And Putin's Dresden was really central uh, to some of these efforts. There was a a Stasi agent called Martin Schlaff, who was uh, siphoning funds through uh, fake deals to create a hard disk plant in in Turingen near Dresden. Uh, Tens of millions of of Deutschmarks was given through his front companies in Liechtenstein and and Singapore. And these were companies that were later staffed by ex- Stasi officers, and there was this kind of hewn of, of continuity because Shlaka, uh, a key cog in, in Putin's own uh, financial regime, after Putin came to power in 2000, Shlaf was running networks and intermediary companies for Gazprom, which is Russia's main state gas monopoly company. 
So to perhaps put it more simply, um, essentially, this is a system that recreates uh, how the KGB would operate in that they would create networks of, of loyal allies in charge of certain sectors. They were adept even in the 80s and perhaps even in the 70s at using front companies, uh, particularly in the West, uh, through which they channeled uh, commodities deals. Commodities would be sold to them at low Soviet internal prices and they would be able to capture the difference when they sold them on world markets and then the difference went to fund influence operations which included buying off and corrupting politicians in the West so that they could co-op them. And so this was already quite a developed system that, that Putin worked in in Soviet times but of course after Russia made the transition to a market economy Russia became so much more deeply embedded in Western markets uh, ten, and Putin had tens of billions of dollars at his command after he became president and so it's it's really a very uh, it's capitalism but certainly not as we know it because the billionaires that orbit him don't act independently they act on Kremlin instructions and mostly they're acting to preserve and project uh, Kremlin power as it happens, Catherine, I just made a film, How to Fix Democracy. Uh, huh. I've mentioned it several times, actually, in this show. And one of the scenes we shot outside uh, that uh, KGB headquarters in Dresden oh. that uh, got surrounded by the crowd in uh, uh -huh. 1989, and uh, Putin was almost uh, lynched. I, I don't know how he managed mm. to talk him, his way out of it. So, so that place has special resonance with me. There's, of course, a, a chilling irony in what you're describing. The Soviet Union, of course, was created as an alternative to the global capitalism of the early part of the 20th century. But what you're suggesting is that uh, as the Soviet Union fell, the KGB and their, uh, their accomplices essentially, uh, essentially looted the state and have used that money which they stole basically from the russian people to uh control international capitalism and undermine western democracies is that fair yeah i wouldn't go so far to say as they control international capitalism certainly they'd like to try and they've made great inroads into infiltrating it um but yes they've they've played a very kind of subtle long game essentially of course they've had many disasters along the way but i think basically it was this foreign intelligence arm of the kgb who from the early 80s onwards could see that the command economy was never going to be competitive with the west that they had to make Make this tradition to the market economy in order to be able to continue uh, funding uh, their empire of influence. And this was at a time when commodity prices were were falling, and they really needed that. They really needed to to make the transition. And of course, uh, at the beginning, they hoped that they would be able to make this transition to a sort of a more of a quasi democracy in a market economy in which they, the KGB, would remain in control behind the scenes, the Stasi, in fact, 
drew up similar plans, which we know about from from Stasi archives. Um, but we also, um, you know, but this was a process that did spin out of their control after the Soviet Union collapsed. I mean, it was just total chaos after the Soviet Union collapsed. And there's some of the kind of loyal allies that they put in charge of that. Some of the earliest cash flows uh, became too self-interested and sort of just were busy enriching themselves while the KGB was kind of left by the wayside. But after Putin came to power, uh, the secu Russian security services have very ably been able to reverse that process and take control of most of Russia's strategic cash flows through kind of uh, coercing oligarchs and billionaires into kind of essentially towing the Kremlin line. So, uh, so, so um, what I get from your book is that there may not be infinite amounts of cash available, but mm. the, the well is very deep when it comes yeah. to uh, finding cash capital to, to infiltrate the, the, the global system and do the dirty work of, of Putin and, and the Kremlin. Yes, because I mean, you have, for instance, uh, there is Gennady Timchenko, who was uh, one of Putin's closest allies from St. Petersburg in the early 90s. Uh, some associates say they even knew each other from before when Putin was serving in the KGB. It's been suggested that Timchenko was also serving in the KGB, uh, operating from Vienna and Zurich at those times. But Mr. Timchenko, of course, he, he denies this. He denies any association with the KGB. KGB, but other associates say otherwise. But Tim Chinka was somebody who was a very niche player uh, initially on the sort of global oil trading front. He traded oil with one Siberian oil company that was always close to the security services uh, called Sergut Neftegas. Uh, but after Putin took the presidency and, and he managed to cow Russia richest man by jailing him and then taking over his old company essentially all That's the other yeah, yes, Khodorkovsky, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who owned Yukus, which was Russia's biggest oil major, and Khodorkovsky was Russia's richest man, and he was jailed uh, in 2003 when uh, FSB agents stormed his plane when it was refueling on a Siberian runway. Um, and this sent a very clear signal to all the other oil majors that they better do what Putin wants them to, and they began awarding a lot of their oil export contracts to Gennady Timchenko, Putin's friend from St. Petersburg, and Timchenko ended up with an oil trader uh, based in Switzerland that was the world's third biggest. It had like $80 billion in revenues on an annual basis. And there were, when we were, when I was reporting on him for the Financial Times, I always kind of heard a steady stream of questions I, of what, how much profit is he making? Is he getting sweetheart deals within Russia, which allows him to make uber profits? It sounds like he was able to, but again, Mr. Timchenko, who's quite litigious, denies that. Um, and, and then what are these profits uh, kind of spent on? Uh, the U.S. Treasury in 2014, after Russia annexed Crimea, uh, the U.S. Treasury claimed that uh, uh, Mr. Timchenko's uh, oil trader was also a place which held uh, money for Vladimir Putin. But it was also the case that when I was doing my reporting and I spent a lot of time talking to associates of Gennady Timchenko in Geneva, they said, look, 
it's more complicated than that. It's not just Putin's money. This is cash that they use uh, to preserve Putin's power at home. It's it's black cash. They use it to uh, buy off officials and sort of make sure they win elections. Right. And it's, 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 also- it's laundered money, yeah. which is used to promote uh, Putin and his people. Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. there's a particular, again, a, a particularly chilling irony. It's almost as if... Uh, it could have come out of a, a 19th century novel about the relationship now between um, uh, the United States and and, and Russia. Uh, of course, they were the, the, the key competitors in the uh, in the Cold War. And in the post-Cold War age, it seems as if the Russians have had more success in infiltrating the American system than they did during the Cold War itself. You quote a Russian banker in, in your book. You said, he said, it, it looks like the whole of the U.S., the whole of U.S. politics is for sale. And you suggest in the book, and particularly in your last chapter on Donald Trump, that um, the Russians have been very successful in financially infiltrating American capitalism. Is that fair? Yeah, I think really the West uh, let its guard down at the end of the Cold War. I think the West became complacent and perhaps uh, forgot some of the principles that helped it win this battle against the Soviet system in the first place. And I think as one former KGB officer put it to me that the West sort of became very naive in relation to to Russia, uh, that they forgot that the Russia could still kind of harbor ambitions as a global player, that it might have be harboring hostile intentions still, but, it, but towards the West. I mean, this former KGB officer said, look, the, these Western officials, they believe that if Russia says it's cooperating, it's cooperating. It doesn't mean anything to them that Russia might be kind of holding out its hand to shake hands while holding a, a massive brick behind its back, you know. And I'm afraid that was, that's was that been the case because there's been sort of hundreds of billions of dollars which have uh, flooded out of Russia since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Of course, of that a lot of that is just stolen loot uh, but a lot of it is now controlled by loyal allies of Vladimir Putin even the independent uh, tycoons of the Yeltsin era have said to me they've said look if we get a call from the Kremlin saying you have to spend one billion dollars or two billion dollars on this or that strategic project you have to obey so there are just huge pools of cash that have uh, entered the West financial system beginning from the Soviet collapse when the KGB began this process of moving money into the West. And indeed, you only have to look at what happened to Western stock markets in the 90s. There was this enormous growth, but uh, not really much economic growth behind it. So where was the money coming from? And the answer perhaps lies uh, partly with the Soviet Union. And and so I think the, the West uh, kind of basically sat back and believed, yes, you know, we it's the end of history. Uh, we won our system works. But again, I think it became quite sort of kind of quite greedy in that process and we only have to see uh the consequences of the 2000 financial 2008 financial crisis and uh, your 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 final chapter about trump mm-hmm. is particularly chilling your book is not a conspiracy theory you're not suggesting that that everything in 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 in, in putin's world is revolving around donald trump that he's some sort of manchurian candidate 
But you do suggest, it seems to me, and again, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but and and, and you're quoting somebody that uh, I think I'm quoting you. You said at some point Trump became a political opportunity. Trump became, it seems to me, in, in the reading of your book, particularly this last, this brilliant, chilling last chapter, that Trump became, uh, shall we say, a, a kind of opportunity that the 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 the, the Putin. Um, that the Putin's Kremlin, Putin's KGB are like VCs. They invest in hundreds of schemes, hundreds of opportunities, and one, two, three, five percent of them turn out to be winners. And it seems as if Trump was one of the winners. Is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, that's a really good assessment. Essentially, I mean, they, I mean, in my book research, I essentially uncovered some kind of uh, KGB affiliated Moscow businessman who'd met him as early as November 1990 and sort of formed a network that surrounded Trump almost ever since. And some of them helped uh, bail out the Trump organization when it was on the verge of bankruptcy on numerous occasions. And indeed, the Trump organization, as, as you probably found too, in your conversation with my colleague Tom Burgess was an ideal vehicle through which to uh, funnel uh, illicit cash flows from Russia and the, and the rest of the former Soviet Union and and indeed probably he was convenient uh, to them for that but yes indeed at some point he did become this great political opportunity uh, when he uh, first announced he was running for president in 2015 this particular uh, Russian tycoon I'd spoken to to who'd known him since November 1990 said he couldn't believe it and he didn't think that he was actually uh, going to, to make it. He was too controversial a character. But then when he did, he was delighted, of course, as was the rest of, of Putin's uh, Kremlin establishment. They couldn't believe their look because really essentially probably what they were trying to do was disrupt uh, Hillary Clinton's candidacy, candidacy because they had known her as some somebody who was uh, uh, kind of uh, an enemy to, to their interest, who would try to kind of rein in the Kremlin's influence operations a around the world. So I think, yeah, they were, they were very good. Very, very briefly, Catherine, uh, mm -hmm. it's hard, of course, to make sense of, 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 of anything Donald Trump says or does. But why is he so unambiguous in his unwillingness to to criticize Putin. I've always thought that if he really is somehow in the pocket of, of, of Putin's KGB, he'd be much more duplicitous, duplicitous in terms of his language about Putin. He'd be much more overtly critical. Why does it seem as if um, he's in the pocket of, of, of the KGB? Why is he playing such a straight game almost? I'm just not sure he's that clever. And also, um, you know, I th and I think probably he believes in his own hubris to such a degree that he probably doesn't think that he has been recruited by them. Uh, I'm sure the Russians believe that they recruited him a long time ago, but Trump probably believes in his own overarching greatness and how wonderful he is. And this is why the Russians are always so nice to him and provide him with juicy business deals. I just don't think that he has that kind of uh, self-awareness that would could make him think otherwise. Is but this why he won't publish his taxes if if if, mm. if we did indeed see his taxes would this russian connection become much more obvious 
I think it's entirely possible because, of course, we we need to see uh, have greater visibility on the finances of the Trump organization because we're yet to know, for instance, how much uh, this company Bayrock, which was set up by uh, former Moscow emigre uh, Felix Sata and another of his former Soviet business partners, Tofu Karif, uh, who were funneling money from the former Soviet Union uh, in a way uh, that one former finance director of Bayrock called basically a, a mob run operation and they were using the Trump organization to to run sort of huge amounts of money they were uh, helping uh, kind of Trump's own business uh, by building a three uh, kind of major kind of towers in in the US one in Arizona one in Florida and one in downtown Manhattan in Soho and and in these projects they were giving him as yet to be disclosed license fees and management fees. We've only heard a tiny snippet of some of the sums that they might have paid them. Felix Sater in one uh, court deposition in 2008 uh, said that uh, Trump had been paid quarter quarter of a million dollars uh, for just uh, one as one down payment for the Arizona Trump Tower alone. And he was given this money for doing nothing, you know, mm. just for that, 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 that. That's what I found yeah. so compelling in your mm -hmm. book. They're essentially giving him money for nothing. Yes. Um, it was so that he can make money without any risk. So again, it's it's the opposite of capitalism. It's yeah. crony capitalism or yes. fake capitalism or state capitalism or KGB capitalism. KB, it, KG, it's KGB capitalism if they're using it. Yeah, I mean, you're playing with the house money, essentially. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's not capitalism because the essence of capitalism relies on risk that you can lose your money. And of yeah. course... The money that Trump, that, that the KGB, get, it's what you suggest, gave Trump or, or mm. channeled through the KGB to Trump uh, came at no risk. Finally, Catherine, what's going to happen in Russia? I know uh, that's a hard question. Two people come to mind in terms of potentially challenging um, Putin. The first, of course, is Navalny, who uh, who was just poisoned, who seems to be the most... Um, public critic and opponent of uh, of Putin and the system of KGB capitalism that has grown around uh, him. Do, do you take him seriously as a threat to Putin? Um, I, yes, I mean, you have to, because you can certainly see that the Kremlin was, was so fearful of him that they had to uh, poison him with the nerve agent Novichok. I think they're getting, in the Kremlin, they're getting increasingly jittery. So it might seem, uh, so Putin just won the nationwide vote, which would allow him to stay in power till 2036. But they weren't really able to do so without a lot of widespread allegations of vote fraud. Uh, they only had to look to what was happening in Belarus, where a very apolitical population suddenly shed all their fear of the security services and police violence to demonstrate for weeks on end against the re-election of Alexander Lukashenko, who's ruled that republic almost ever since the Soviet Union collapsed, to kind of, it really did kind of put the fears into the Kremlin, because they'd also been facing unprecedented protests in the Far East, the economy is no longer growing. In fact, Russia is facing a 6% recession this year. And, and Putin's really running out of tricks and people are probably quite bored of him. And so it's not just Navalny who is a threat to him. I think the, the kind of a perhaps even bigger threat could 
come from within his own political elite because I hear time and again from, from Moscow businessmen, some of whom have done very well under the Putin system, that they're now also tiring of this KGB capitalism. What about uh, Khodorovsky, mm-hmm. who uh, Khodorovsky. was, uh, mm-hmm. I apologize for my dreadful yeah. Russian pronunciation, mm-hmm. um, who was, of course, Russia's most powerful, wealthiest, quote-unquote, capitalist, and then was essentially purged from, from uh, went to prison, and now is, where, where is he living? Catherine. He is in London uh, as well. I think he does. Uh, you know, he 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 funds various opposition of efforts in Russia. Obviously, his op- opposition efforts are targeted uh, also hard by the security services. They his offices were also raided uh, ahead of local elections uh, two weeks ago. Uh, so you know they face a lot of pressure so but i probably this the real threat will probably come from a figure that we have not yet identified it will become it will come from inside uh the moscow elite because you do hear that they're sick of this kind of lack of economic vision uh from putin and his team that putin and the security service officers who run the country with him only know how to take over businesses and then use the cash to prop up their own power and run influence operations abroad, but they don't know how to create a, a, a strong competitive economy at home. And, and there are quite a few now who are really sort of beginning to chafe at this, this KGB system, which is not creative or it's just destructive and only aimed at undermining enemies abroad. So what, will, what, what I think you're suggesting is that what will follow Vladimir Putin is one of his own people. And everyone should certainly read Catherine Belton's new book, Putin's People. Uh, it's, it's an award-winning book, and it really adds uh, an important dot to making sense of the, 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 the kleptopia which has taken over the world. Catherine, you're in uh, London at the moment uh, in September 2020. You're locked down like the rest of the world. Uh, in addition to your book, what else should people be reading to make sense of our peculiar early 21st century world? I think definitely uh, my colleague Tom Burgess's Kleptopia. I think it's a, it's a really penetrating glance into how uh, sort of this black cash has been funneled uh, through the Trump organization from the former Soviet Union in particular. It looks at a trio of operatives who are able to wow the the London uh, stock market. They were able to list uh, a company called ENRC, although they were essentially a uh, mafia-run organization and, and Tom really just sort of paints this the way that they were able to capture the city of London in, in very uh, clear terms, which are quite shocking and, and really disturbing. Another book that's just out uh, that seems incredibly interesting and I really want to dive into it is by Tim Weiner. He's really an award-winning writer. He's won several Pulitzers and his book is called The Folly and the Glory. And in that, he really does pose the central question of whether Trump is a Russian agent or not. I haven't read it yet, but I know he's got incredible sources. So I'm really looking forward to diving into that you've been listening to keynote hosted by me andrew key 
Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.